Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. For all our latest news, follow UCI Law on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Well, thank you for joining us. My name is Austin Parrish. I'm the Dean and a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. This is UCI Law Talks, the podcast where you learn more about the amazing anteater community that is UCI Law, but you also get to hear from inspiring leaders and lawyers in the legal profession. Today, we're doing something special in honor of Fred T. Korematsu Day on January 30th. This is the first statewide day in U.S. history named after an Asian American. Korematsu Day has been recognized in approximately 20 states, including California, New York, Florida, Virginia, Michigan, and more. To honor that day, today I'm very fortunate to be joined by Professor Bob Chang, the Executive Director of the Fred T. Korematsu Center for Law and Equality and a Professor of Law currently at Seattle University. Professor Chang will be joining the faculty of UCI Law this coming summer. He's a nationally recognized scholar who's made a tremendous impact in his scholarship, his teaching, his mentorship of students, and his work as the Executive Director of the Korematsu Center. In 2022, he was the recipient of Seattle University's McGoldrick Fellowship, the most prestigious honor Seattle University can confer upon its faculty. Hey, Bob, so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome, and uh, nice to have you uh, uh, join us for this special episode of UCI Law Talks. Thanks, Austin. And yeah, I'm really excited to, to get down there. Uh, I'd love to be there right now, So, uh, especially with the cold weather that we're experiencing up here. Well, I've got to say the sun is shining right now, and uh, <laughs> I apologize for that. But well, let's start with the, uh, well, and I should say, we are looking forward to having you down here in Irvine. So not only not only do I hope the weather will hold, but it'll be great when you get your feet on the ground here uh, coming up soon. But hey, let's get, let's get started with just the basics and maybe a little bit of an introduction to our listeners about the center, its history, its tremendous legacy. And so maybe we can begin with sort of a basic question. What is the Fred T. Korematsu Center for Law and Equality? And can you describe its goals and ambitions? Sure. In terms of you know the center goals and ambitions, it's pretty basic. And and maybe I should just read what our mission is. It's to advance justice and equality through a unified vision that combines research, advocacy, and education. And so you know the center is located in a law school, uh, and and so you know it is a racial justice advocacy organization located in an academic institution. And so, you know, what we do is we think about things like the fact of racial inequality in U.S. society. And so what we try to do is we try to understand, well, what produces it? How does it come about? In addition to thinking about how does it come about, in part because we're a law school, we try to think about practical solutions. Is there something that we could think about to remedy it? So if there's something about the law itself that helps to produce these observed inequalities, we try to think about, well, what kind of doctrinal pathway, whether it's under the federal constitution, whether it's under a state constitution, whether it is statutory, to try to achieve an outcome. And then, especially because we are in, in a law school, we work with students to train them in terms of how to do this work with the idea that then they go out with these tools to be able to do this work out there in the world. Well, one of the, and what a great training experience for students. That's a great goal and mission. And I mentioned that on January 30th, we're going to celebrate Fred T. Korematsu Day. The California does that. That's the name of the center. Who was Fred Korematsu? And, and why is it important in U.S. history? And why is he important to the center? 
Sure. So let me start by talking a little bit about Fred, uh, for those who may not be familiar with his story. So uh, Japanese American, uh, U.S. citizen, although I don't know that it really matters in terms of how he was treated uh, during World War II, uh, he was a young uh, welder in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, when war broke out. Then shortly afterwards, uh, first there was a curfew order, and then there was uh, an exclusion order. So people who looked like him of his ancestry had to report to these so-called relocation centers that was a way station before they would be placed in incarceration camps away from the, the West Coast. Uh, he said no. He's like, this is not right. He said no, and then he got arrested. While he was in jail, Ernest Bessig, who was uh, with the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, visited him in jail because Ernest was looking for a test case to try to challenge this mistreatment of Japanese Americans uh, during the war. And he talked to Fred, asked him if he would be willing to be a test case, and Fred said yes. And so uh, this case, he was convicted in federal district court in San Francisco, and he appealed his conviction all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this decision uh, is often regarded as a stain on our U.S. Constitution, on our constitutional jurisprudence, where the court said, well, obviously racism is, is, is terrible and we would never countenance or, or allow for racism. Uh, but then they went ahead and said, treating Japanese Americans like this was, was okay. Uh, and so the case is important constitutionally. And so, you know, it ends up being something that is taught in, in U.S. law schools. But the story didn't stop there. What happened is around 40 years later, researchers, uh, Peter Irons and the archivist uh, Aiko Hertzig Yoshinaga, found evidence in the National Archives that the Department of Justice had misrepresented facts before the U.S. Supreme Court. This actually allowed a reopening of the wartime conviction. Attorneys uh, went to him and asked him, well, are you interested in, in seeking justice now? And he said yes, because he didn't think that his treatment was okay. And at one point, the U.S. government actually um, tried to stop the lawsuit, the challenge to his wartime conviction, by offering him a pardon. And his response was, I'm not accepting a pardon. I should be pardoning the U.S. government. And so I really appreciate his spirit saying no to injustice, fighting for justice. But then most importantly, uh, even after he his conviction was overturned in 1984, he worked to advance justice for others. And so that's the, the Fred Korematsu story part of it. Now, in terms of how that gets connected to this center, starting around 2005, I wanted to start a center. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, Seattle University uh, gave me the opportunity to start a center. So as an academic, I was going to call it the Center for the Study of Race and Inequality, because that's what us academics do. We, we create centers that study race and inequality. But then I had this great conversation with one of my colleagues, Professor Lorraine Bonai, who had been on the legal team in the 1980s that worked to overturn his wartime conviction. And she said, well, what if we named this center after Fred Korematsu? Uh, and it's like, like lightning bolt, like that was the, like a brilliant, brilliant idea. 
We quickly arranged a meeting with the Korematsu family in San Francisco. It's actually in Oakland. So we met in Jack London Square. I remember that day. It was a rainy day meeting in, in, in a private room in, in, in a restaurant there. And lo and behold, to my surprise, Captain Korematsu, who's Fred's widow, actually said yes at, that, at the end of the meeting. And so, you know, that's how the center got started in terms of its name. And we've been working uh, very hard to fulfill, to honor his legacy. I realize that just went on for a very long time, and I apologize for that. No, no, no. That's That history is important. And you know, it's hard to underscore just how significant a figure he is in American history. And, and certainly, I think, probably one of the leading civil rights icon of the last 100 years and, and the most important Asian-American uh, civil rights icon, I think, over that period. Um, do you think I'm right on that? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I remember when hearing that when President Clinton awarded Fred Korematsu the president, Presidential Medal of, of, of Freedom, I think part of his, his remarks included that we add Fred Korematsu's name to, you know, and the list included Rosa Parks, and, and, and I forget the other names, but you know, when we think about important civil rights icons and what they stand for, and also the reminders that they serve, because that's what we do when we, you know, go to courts. We seek to remind them of this legacy, and it gives us, in some ways, uh, the, the 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 moral voice, um, you know, that to speak uh, justice in the face of injustice. Now that makes sense. You said you're the founding executive director. Is the uh, is the Korematsu uh, family still playing a role in the center, and and have they played a role in its continued su- success since you founded it that uh, that rainy day in Oakland? Yes. Yeah, so uh, you know, we make sure to maintain a, a close relationship uh, with the Korematsu family, especially with with the daughter Karen Korematsu, who is the one who's really been working uh, to advance uh, her father's legacy after Fred's passing in 2005, and after Catherine, his widow's passing in, I want to say 2010, 2011. And so part of it includes that in order for the Korematsu Center to move from Seattle University to UC Irvine, uh, we had to get the family's permission uh, to do that because, you know, this is, uh, this is their family. This is their family legacy. And so we maintain a close relationship. Now, Karen, at the same in the same year that we founded the Korematsu Center up in Seattle, uh, she founded in San Francisco the Korematsu Institute. That creates some some name confusion. You know, people are like, I sometimes get emails about about the Korematsu Institute, and she sometimes gets emails about the Korematsu Center. I mean, her focus uh, is primarily on advancing civics education initially, especially K through 12, but now beyond that, really trying to educate students about the history of the mistreatment of Japanese Americans and other, you know, other others, right? Other racial minorities and others who have been been, been subjected to discrimination. And then, uh, you know, one of her projects has included trying to get this recognition through the uh, getting states and sometimes local municipalities to recognize uh, Fred Korematsu Day. Uh, And it really is about trying to remind people about this incident in history, this this terrible incident, in order to motivate people to not do that again. 
how relevant in our in our age. I've had the privilege, as you know, to have met Karen Karamatsu, and she's an icon in her own right. It's uh, amazing how she's continued her father's legacy. Well, that's a great background about the center and its its founding. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the actual work that center does and the students do that are working with you. You, you know, it's one of the few of its kind, at least in the scope and the breadth of its work it does. Um, can you describe the center's work and and how or the different ways that you make an impact? Sure. So, you know, one of the areas that we pay a lot of attention to is race discrimination in the criminal legal system. You know, both locally, so within Washington State, you know, we were we we've been up here, but also nationally. And so, you know, part of it includes just really trying to think about first is it a matter of documenting race disproportionality? And if that's the case, we do the research to support the factual findings of race disproportionality. But again, then to try to think about, well, how does it come about and what could we do to address? So as an example, I'm so proud of the work of my assistant, you know, one of my assistant directors who's been leading clinic teams, so student teams, on this one particular issue that involves something that we observe, which is that Black children tend to get punished more severely than do white children. You know, so that's an observed disproportionality. So then to try to understand, well, how does that come about? You know, we could just say, well, it's because of racism. But, you know, going to court and saying, oh, it's because of racism doesn't get the court to do anything. And so, uh, my assistant director, uh, Jessica Levin, uh, you know, supervised students in doing research. And they there's this research out there about, uh, it's called adultification bias. And it's this bias that exists. And sometimes it can be explicit, but quite often it's implicit. Black children are regarded as being older than they are biologically. And so because they're regarded as being older, the hypothesis then is, that because they're perceived as older, they're seen as more culpable, more blameworthy, which then leads to harsher punishments. And then on the flip side of it, white children are seen as younger, more innocent, and therefore more worthy in, in we think, sentencing court's eyes of receiving uh, lesser punishments. And so then once we have the outcome and the research, we then think about are there cases out there that try to bring that before the attention of the judges to then think about, well, what might the solution be? And so that's just one example where, you know, in the criminal legal system, we observe an outcome that we think is not right. We try to understand it and to then think about the specific ways that we can support litigation to address that. I was a student uh, working in the clinic or working in the center. It sounds like I'm doing some research. I might be doing some court work. Can you can you give me a sense of what my day-to-day life as a student might be? So the day-to-day life, I mean, includes that when we're thinking about the, the clinic, in part because we try to give them a an experience where they begin a project and end a project with a court filing. Amicus briefs is, are, are often a, a very, con, you know, a, a nice pedagogical tool that also serves uh, our advocacy goals. So for those who don't know, an amicus brief is a friend of the court brief. So we're not parties to the litigation, but we sometimes represent ourselves or represent other groups who have a stake in the outcome. They're going to be impacted. And rather than being excluded from the proceedings, through an amicus brief, they get, actually get to express themselves. 
uh, to court. And so over the course of a semester, there will be a primary project where they begin with from start to finish up to the filing. But in addition to that, uh, we, you know, litigation doesn't just happen, you know, between, you know, August 15 and, and you know, December 1 in, in, in a semester. Uh, we're involved in, in lots of uh, litigation around the country. And so what happens is as we have work, they get dropped into more discrete assignments. So they have a major role in, in one project, an amicus brief, that they research and draft, like all the silly little things at the end, right? Getting the tables done right, the pages and, and the alphabetization of the table of authorities. But then they also get dropped into other projects. So as an example, one of the cases that we've been involved in was, you know, for six years uh, being co-counsel to Mexican-American high school students who were challenging a law that was used to terminate the Mexican-American studies program in the Tucson Unified School District. Now, over the course of the litigation, you know, it might be that during a semester we're doing discovery. And so they might work on interrogatories or requests for admissions uh, or go over production that, that the other side provides. Or we might be in summary judgment, um, you know, uh, proceedings and they might do some research to support drafting on, on things like that. And so what we try to do is to give them a varied experience so that it's in some ways like life in, in, a, in a law firm. You know, it's not just like you have one project. And maybe, you know, some, some attorneys are lucky to just have one project or one client that, that, that they, can, they can work with and work on. But a lot of little things do come up. Well, speaking of multiple projects and juggling multiple balls at the same time, you wear multiple hats. You're not just the executive director. You're also a professor of law. Can you describe a little bit about your research and teaching interests separate and apart from what you do uh, with the center? So sometimes I feel like I have three jobs. Let, let's figure out how, how to best support me in, in doing my, my three jobs. As and a so, dean, I deny that, by the way. So I just... <laughs> Much as I enjoy the the advocacy, and, and part of it includes that when you're doing advocacy, uh, you get immediate feedback. It's like, oh, you win a case or you lose a case. Your motion to dismiss is, is denied or or or, or uh, accepted. Whereas when you're doing research, you know, part of it is trying to affect hearts and minds. And, you know, so when I think about the work that we do, I do think about different. I think about the short term. I think about the mid middle level. And I think about long term. Long term is, is hearts and minds. You know, we have to change hearts and minds if we're really going to produce durable change. And my research, in, you know, I think fits along that. You know, it's harder, though, to know the, the direct tangible effects of the research. But you do it with faith. You, you like, I'm going to put these ideas out there. I'm going to talk to people about them. And you hope that these ideas uh, uh you know, are heard and then sometimes uh, listened. And so, you know, in terms of my work, right, I, I, I write about race. So, you know, a lot of my work focuses on Asian Americans and also especially about how different racial groups fit within the American racial uh, topography. And then also a lot of it, I think, is trying to understand, you know, how conflict arises and how conflict is managed. And then especially how coalitions are built. I think that's actually very critical, not just to my research, but also to the work of the Korematsu Center. We do a lot of work in collaboration with, with others. So it, it looked like you had a question that was coming out. So 
Well, I was going to say, you know, if a um, if somebody wanted to get a glimpse into into your work, and you've written a number of books, you've written dozens and dozens of articles and and reviews and, and essays. Is there something that sticks in your mind that says, you know, this would be this would be a good introduction to the work of Professor Bob Chang? Is there is one of your books, maybe, or one of your articles that you would recommend if our listeners wanted to learn a little more? Sadly, one of the best things that I've written is the first thing that I wrote. And, and I say sadly because, you know, it's like maybe I should have retired after, after writing it. But my first article was called Toward an Asian American Legal Scholarship. What it did was to try to address what I thought was a silence, both in terms of academic writing and also in terms of civil rights work, that not enough attention was being paid to what was happening to Asian Americans. Uh, and so speaking that was something that was very important to me. And so, you know, that's that if you're OK reading 81 pages and 432 footnotes, start there. Well, I've but, read but some thank of your you for work. Asking that question. Uh, well, no, I've read some of your work and I know what you're saying is not true. You've had a body of work that's been influential, but I think that's a great place for uh, for people to start. Well, you're moving to Irvine this summer and to join University of California, Irvine School of Law. Uh, can you tell me more about that move and and uh, sort of what you're hoping to accomplish and, and uh, maybe about your excitement of, of coming down to Southern California? So part of my excitement about joining the UC Irvine uh, community includes how rich an academic environment it is. I'm so excited to join the, the colleagues who are doing work uh, on race and uh, inequality, both in the law school and, and in the broader university. You know, in terms of moving the Karamazzi Center, it's, it's not something that I did lightly. And it has to do with my ambition with regard to the Karamazzi Center, which is to create a durable institution because the center is not me. I mean, I think sometimes people think it's me and maybe it's because my Twitter handle is Kormatsu Center and it's not me. And, and that was why I wanted to start a center because, you know, too often we do work out there as individuals. We're too atomistic. But by creating a center that I hope will persist, Irvine, uh, I was so grateful when uh, UC Irvine made the offer in terms of what the center would be able to do at Irvine in a way that allowed for its sustainability. Because, you know, when I think about life and, and the boundedness of, of, of our existence, I think I have another 15 years in me in terms of doing this work. And I hope to be able to hand off the center, including even before that that time, to allow somebody else to fill it with their vision because Fred Carmont's legacy is is so capacious. I have a certain you know way that I'm I'm going about it, but it is so capacious. I would love to see it continue to grow. And I think that UC Irvine is giving us the opportunity for that to happen. I should say, since it was announced, the outpouring of sort of interest from those in the community that uh, know the Korematsu legacy, know the work that you've already done, and are excited that uh, you're going to be doing it here in our backyard uh, with our students. I, it's been it's been wonderful. And I, so I think you're going to find a, a very strong community here in Orange County that's 
that's uh, excited about all you're doing and excited about the, the impact that it has on students too, right? Giving them a glimpse on how they can make a real difference and learn tremendous learning skills while, while they're a student, which is fabulous. Um, you know, maybe a basic question. If somebody in the community wanted to support the Korematsu Center and, and its work, how, how would they do that? What's, what's the best way for them to, to reach out? One of the ways that we've been able to be able to work in, in so many different parts of the, the country has included that we do a lot of work with Pro Voda Council. There is so much goodwill out there among people who want to do good. There is so much goodwill out there in terms of people who want to work to advance racial justice. What I think that the Korematsu Center provides is a vehicle for them to be able to bring in their time and talent in a way that we can guide them. Uh, and then, to be crass, I mean, the, the other way to, to support uh, this work includes uh, investing in the center in terms of financial resources. The more financial resources that we have, the more that we can do. You know, as an example, um, growing out of the litigation that we did in, in Arizona, the law firm that that I worked with that took the case to trial, while Gottschall actually gave us $150,000 that was matched to do a postgraduate uh, advocacy fellowship. And so that's an example of what financial resources can do. So we are able to hire somebody who has graduated from law school, who's trying to figure out a pathway in terms of public interest law. And then for us to be able to work with them to benefit from their work, but then also in the goal is to launch them. And so in that way, uh, adding to the capacity out there in terms of those who are able to, to, to do this work. But again, this is one where resources are required. When you say that, though, it, it reminds me of how, you know, it has almost a double impact, right? Or maybe even a triple impact because you hire somebody as a fellow who not only helps serve live clients and those most in need. And so they're making a difference there, but you're helping the person who's in that role launch their career. And so you're doing that. And then you're helping advance the research and understanding of these issues on a much broader level for the benefit of society. It's rare in those circumstances that that a dollar can have an impact in, in such a long way. So maybe it's it's part of you having three jobs at the same time that it ends up having uh, three ways that it impacts the world in a positive aspect. You know, you were talking about public interest and pro bono work. You know, one of the things that we emphasize here at at the law school is not only the importance of serving the community, but also how that makes students a better lawyers, that if they're serving those most in need, helping those most in need and learning the skills that they need as a lawyer, they they become more adept at being a good lawyer and, and more adept at serving communities they're going to serve after they graduate. Well, that's my take. So how do you go through the role of public service and public interest work as a component of legal education, as a component of your work? I agree with you. So when I think about the power that lawyers have and also the role that lawyers play as leaders in our communities, whether local, regional or, or national, bringing them in and filling them with imbuing them with this notion of the public service and you know as a as a state law school uc Irvine is particularly well suited in terms of this as 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 a core mission that 
there is a responsibility and obligation uh, to give back. And one of the great things then is that if you're able to show the students how to do that while they're in law school, it makes them more likely to continue it when they go out and whether they practice in a private firm or for a corporation or for a state government or uh, even if they you know hang up their own shingle it's there there's so many different ways and obviously you know not every case is going to be you know like be a a you know challenging the constitutional constitutionality of a state statute but for me one of the things that that you know it's it's the reminder of, of lawyering as a as a service profession Some, sometimes i get the most joy out of helping a friend with regard to a landlord who is mistreating them with regard to their security deposit you know the the dollar amount is is not you know it's it's not a huge figure but in their lives you know giving them this kind of assistance also sometimes being able to show them how they can advocate i mean that that uh is is such a um wonderful experience to be able to to have well i think you've said that so well and and uh I saw a statistic last year that almost 95% of our first-year students volunteered with with local nonprofits, government agencies, and local firms that were doing volunteer work in their first semester of law school, which is pretty extraordinary. But but I think that's also because students realize that not only can they make a difference and and they can work with some fabulous uh, community lawyers, but they also learn great skills. Right? I, I like to think I teach a decent class and and uh, you know explain what's in the books. But there's something about actually working with clients and actually having to interact with people and those soft skills that are critical, I think, turning somebody into a good lawyer into a great lawyer. So I think you summarized that exactly, exactly right. You know, I, I've asked you a number of, you've already discussed a number of projects or and cases and, and things that you worked with on the center. But if you're looking back over the last, you know, the history since 2005, is is there one case or project that, that you're particularly proud of that you look back on and say, this really sort of illustrates uh, Fred Korematsu's legacy best and kind of shows the potential for how the center can do good and has done good? I think the accomplishment that I'm most proud of is what we were able to do in in Arizona. Uh, And, you know, I I mentioned this earlier, a case that we were involved in for for six years, representing Mexican-American high school students who had been told that Mexican-American history and their stories did not belong in the classroom. I mean, think about the message uh, that that imparts to those students, the the damage uh, that it does. But in addition to that, evidence shows that ethnic studies increases student engagement and improves student outcomes documented in that case through our expert test scores and and graduation rates. But the other part of it that I think is critical, and and this reminds me of the first day of, of the trial, when one of the teachers testified, and he talked about what his goal was in in his classroom in Latino Latino literature, and it was that he wanted to provide materials that provided a mirror for those students to be able to see themselves, but also a window onto the world. You know, the idea is that ethnic studies isn't just for the group that you're you're part of, that. Ethnic studies is critical for everyone because it gives you a window to the world 
uh, that you might not otherwise see. And it's critical then for preparing you for our multiracial democracy. And I'm most proud of it uh, in part because we are encountering a time now where certain states and school boards are saying certain kinds of history can't be taught, the truth, and sometimes can't can't be taught. And I think there's a real harm there. And I think that the work that we did in Arizona provides a template uh, for how some of these book bans and curriculum bans can be fought. And so in addition to the specific outcome that we got there, it's like, by the way, I, I think I forgot to say, like, we won, you know, after, after the trial. But it, it is also that it provides a model for those who are fighting these battles uh, today. Well, Bob, hey, thank you for being the guest on this uh, today's episode of uh, UCI Law Talks. Great to learn more about the center. And, and uh, I think some of our listeners may not have known the full story of Fred T. Korematsu. And so fabulous to learn more about him and, and the legacy that, that Karen Korematsu has been leading. We're looking forward to seeing you in Irvine and, and very soon and having the center call UCI Law home. Uh, before we sign up and end this today's episode, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know either about the center, your work, or your move to UC Irvine? I don't know that I have anything sort of like a nice sort of thing in terms of that question. So sometimes people have words of wisdom for students. Uh, It could be as simple as you should sign up for my class. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bob, great to have you on uh, today's uh, today's episode. Thanks for making the time and and looking forward to seeing you in in UC Irvine very soon. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm so excited to, to get down there. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for listening to UCI Law Talks. For all our latest news, follow UCI Law on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.